Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It is a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be a part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We are broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Darren Lasagas. And what a week. Mm-mm-mm. What a moment. Um, we are going to get into the elephant in the room uh, in a minute, but it's not all going to be US politics today. Later on in the show, you'll be hearing from Canberra-based Filipino-Australian musician Ryan Fennis. You may be familiar with his music listening to station um, you know, for the past few months or so. I had a super interesting chat with him about his personal journey with decolonization and how that's informed his relationship to making music as well as his uh, Filipino identity. Yeah, we're really excited to hear that chat. But before that, we're going to be having a yarn with Chantelle Alcouri. She's a co-host of Back Chat, FBI Radio's politics and current affairs show about the excruciatingly drawn out, too close to call race that is Trump v. Biden 2020. How have you been amongst all of this this week, Darren? Look, I'm kind of in a general state of confusion how, like the process itself is kind of just bizarre, isn't it? It's been looks like it's been created so confusingly and complicatedly um, hard to engage with on purpose. Yeah, um, I feel like I am learning more than I ever have in you know the past X amount of years that I've watched U.S. elections uncovered. Um, but I, the more I learn, the more I'm confused about it. Like. Mm the electoral college vote system, like some states' votes are worth more than other states' votes. What does it mean when, you know, some of those states' population are made up of more white people than there are minorities? Like, just the the idea that someone's vote could mean more than someone else's vote is terrifying to me. A hundred percent. And I've been saying this on Brekkie all week, and, like, when it came to this election, I wasn't too massively invested in it as I was with the 2016 one. One, because back in 2016, we were like, it would never happen. Totally. <laughs> Trump's totally. never going to get in. But also, I was um, less invested in this one because of the fact that um, Bernie Sanders never got the Democratic nomination again. That, that really infuriated me. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't understand what's going on over in the United States. I'm not from there. I don't really understand the climate of things over there. I don't have those lived experiences of being from the United States. So I wouldn't know what the actual um, climate of things are, but... At the same time, like as much as I wasn't that invested in this election because of it, it still doesn't mean that as you know, as black, brown people, colour over here, we still share that same type of pain and fear that um, 
our black, brown brothers and sisters do over in the United States because it is like we have a shared pain and a shared understanding of what it means when there is someone in power that is truly detrimental to your life, to your livelihood and what that means for you. So it doesn't mean that I'm not, like, I'm not invested in it at all because of that. I'm, if I'm invested in it, it's because of that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sharing the same type of like hope for them that it's not going to be another another four years of, of damage done to their mm. lives if it is Trump. Because the thing with Trump is that he res- he represents something that's so um, alarmingly dangerous. Yeah. And it's true we are at a distance from the US that we can kind of watch um, yeah, as I said, from a distance. But that's not to say that there aren't people here in Australia that identify with with Trump and with yep. Trumpisms. Like, you know, yeah. in, in the past few weeks, I've seen some businesses come out in support of Trump and hold, hold like, Trump-themed nights, being like, come watch election coverage with us. We're, we're all Trump supporters. I'm just like, what? Like, why? Yeah. I mean, I, I was saying this to Darren before off-air and, like, the thing with Trump, and we have the same... Trump is no different. It's not an unknown enemy to us here either. It's not that... It, the villain of Trump is very known to us here. Our people live it every single day as well. The fear of living under, you know, fascist thinking, the fear of living under ideologies and systems that work systemically against you as you and your existence mm. and are in direct opposition to your existence. And... um what I was saying to Darren before off air is that what Trump has brought out into the out into the known is white supremacy, but white supremacy in its like like confident white supremacy, like conf- like white supremacy that's not trying to disguise itself. It's overt, and yeah. It's very overt, and at the same time, it's like okay, cool. So I like you know what Trump. I've heard some you know some POC people be like you know Trump has brought out you know. Um, the known enemy and we can see it more and we can combat it more and we can have bigger conversations at it. But I'm thinking like at the same time, but at what cost? Because we should be able to have these conversations nonstop. It should be ongoing. Black people shouldn't have to die and Trump, people like Trump and Scott Morrison shouldn't be in power and, you know, 800-year-old sacred sites and 46,000-year-old sacred sites shouldn't have to get cut down and blown up with, you know, the most bare minimum of apologies given to us in order for us to be like, yeah, we can have this conversation now. People are literally dying, you know? Yeah. And the tragic thing uh, is that Trump has banked his power on driving division and paranoia and anxiety through a country that would have benefited from any, if at all, policies that uh, he had promised, but he didn't, you know? Like, it's literally fear. Exactly. And the thing with um, a lot of that I see as well when I read up on it is, you know, they don't understand, like a lot of these white people, they don't understand how Trump is also functioning in direct opposition to them. Like he exactly. only is, he represents a type of white supremacy that's only for um, rich white people yeah, as the well. Elite. The elite. And so when you see, um, you know, white people completely be like, oh no, like, you know, he's all good for us. It's like, we're watching you directly choose whiteness. It's the same of when we saw white women vote so hard for Trump back in 2016. It was them showing very much like demonstrating to us that they will pick their race and their power before they pick the part of their identity that is in that is at their detriment. Mm. You are listening to Race Matters with Sada Khan and Darren Lasagas. Up next, we're going to be chatting with Backchat's Chantel Alkuri with an update on the US election and the public response from people of colour in the States.
to Race Matters. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Darren Lasagas. And look, this week it's been pretty hard to focus on anything but the US presidential race. But there is an overwhelming amount of information to take in and to help us interpret what the heck is actually going on. Uh, we're joined on the line by Chantal Alkouri, journalist and co-host of Backchat, FBI Radio's politics and current affairs program and podcast. Chantel, thank you so much for coming on Race Matters. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so obviously things can get lit, I mean, things are literally changing minute to minute. Um, but could you give us a bit of an outline of the situation as it stands in the US? Absolutely, yeah. It's a little, uh, it's been a long wait, I think. It's a little all over the place. Um, as of yet, Biden's taken the lead over Trump in, in two crucial states. So he's leading in Georgia, um, and there's currently being a recount because it's too close to call. But he's also overtaken Trump in Pennsylvania. Um, and that's a big deal because it's a key battleground state. So if, if Biden does win Pennsylvania, he ultimately wins the election. Um, I won't get into the Electoral College and all of that mess. But what that means is Pennsylvania's worth 20 electoral votes. So he'd be surpassing the number of votes that he actually needs to reach, reach that 270. Um, I'm guessing it'll, it, you know, the, the vote counting will go in into the night. It's going to take a while before we actually know we're awaiting Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Nevada, North Carolina and Alaska. But um, we did see Joe Biden, I think, two hours ago say, He's quite confident that the Democrats will win the election. But um, as always, you never know when it comes to that. And we've also heard a lot of vague detail about these legal battles unfolding and Trump submitting all of these challenges to the Supreme Court. Can you tell us a bit what's going on there? Yeah, um, what we're seeing now is the Trump campaign pursuing a number of different lawsuits. So He's claiming that the election's being stolen from him by the Democratic Party, but at the moment these remain unfounded accusations and there's no definitive proof. Uh, at the end of the day, it's all up to the courts and how they choose to deal with those lawsuits. So he's pursuing lawsuits in Michigan, Nevada, there's several in Pennsylvania uh, and also Georgia. A lot of these are key states. Um, but we've also seen, like, these being rejected. So in Michigan, the judge denied the Trump campaign effort to stop the count. Um, and in Georgia, the Superior Court judge dismissed the lawsuit. So uh, it's a long wait of seeing what they choose to do with these lawsuits and where they end up going. And if that delays, finding out the outcome of this. Mm, I didn't realise that the yeah the courts had come back so quickly with um, shutdowns. So is it true? Is it fair to say that these claims by Trump are pretty pretty baseless? Then, uh, from what I can see, a lot of them are. And it was interesting to watch the American media cut from his speech, mm. saying that you know his this election's being stolen from him. You don't often see that, but they were doing live fact-checking, which would have been crazy for those journos mm. yeah. trying to tackle what this president is saying and, you know, obviously how his supporters will react as well. Yeah, speaking of supporters and um, the ones closest to him, what have been the Republican Party responses to him um, calling this election rigged and stolen? Um, from what I've seen, they're agreeing with him and also, you know, calling for calling for them to, you know, look into this and, and you know, we can't, we have to stop the votes and, and, mm. and that kind of thing. I'm not sure if that'll 
go through. But yes, it's all about those those lawsuits. They haven't stopped the counting as as a lot of protesters were demanding um, in places like Pennsylvania. So we'll have to see. I mean, it's really alarming how much influence Trump has over his supporters to kind of galvanise <laughs> this protesting that is absolutely baseless as well. Do you think that's quite like that can have any type of trajectory or have any type of um, impact in terms of the public, in terms of the Trump um, demographic pushing like or believing what he's saying in terms of the election being rigged? Oh, for sure. I think no matter what the outcome is of this election, we're going to see protests and and calls to recount certain states or um yeah, the, the reaction seems to be that they're, they're following with what he's saying. And, and yeah, I mean, they, for four years we've witnessed that, that everything mm. he says, they, mm. they listen to him, they trust him. So when he's saying something like this, it's huge. And, and if it were true, it would be, it would be you know, a, a massive, like it would be so telling of their democracy. But these accusations are unfounded. There's, there's no proof. So, you know, yeah, it's a big deal what, what he's saying. Yeah, and also while acknowledging um, that we're all on the other side of the world right now and can't really speak directly to how Americans are feeling, this election has still been pretty inspiring to myself as a woman of colour, is what me and Darren were talking yeah. about before. Um, what is the public response over in the United States from that demographic? Yeah, I think I can... I can definitely agree with it being uninspiring. It's been interesting to see the Democrats do this for a second time in a row. Um, this is two elections in a row, uh, two campaigns in a row that they've put forward a candidate that's kind of controversial and uninspiring and has a bad track record mm-hmm. with Hillary and with Biden. Yeah. So ultimately, I think with what it's looking like now, if Biden were to win, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that a lot of people are settling for Biden. Mm. Um, That fight is going to be ongoing if he wins. Um, I saw a a tweet that that said it perfectly. They said that, you know, if Biden wins, many people that supported him and him himself are going to be saying that, you know, they're going to spend the next four years saying, shut up, you're lucky it's not Trump. Yeah, right. Um, And you should be grateful while he, you know, destroys black communities. Um, we've seen that, you know, if you look at Kamala Harris and, and Joe Biden's records with, you know, um, mass incarceration, the crime bill, they don't have a great track record with people of colour. These are politicians who will do the bare minimum of saying, you know, Black Lives Matter, but then play a huge part in the destruction of those very same communities. So I think they should be looking at voting as a tool, not a solution. This mm is going to be a release for so many if it is Biden, but it's definitely not a win. Um, and and hopefully, you know, they'll stay critical of whoever's elected um, because there's a lot of work to be done. I don't even know if we'll see it in our lifetime. Yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. it's kind of the case of we'll protest now and once Biden's in office, we'll continue to protest then. Yeah, yeah, and like I was even saying to Darren before that the kind of damage that Trump has done in the last four years is not overnight. It's not an overnight fix. Like there was a kind of the similar, like even like putting Biden and his problematic (laughs) track record aside, but even when um, Obama came in, there was, he had to spend next, the whole eight years actually 
fixing or doing some type of regeneration to the hurt and the damage that um, the Bush administration had done. So yeah. it's kind of similar in this sense, like the amount of damage, the substantial damage that's been done from the last four years of the Trump administration, like that's there's, there's a there's, it's an on we're going to see work that needs to be done there or will probably never get done beyond um, this election. Yeah, I can already feel the Biden-Harris um, team appealing to that sentiment as well. I, I saw that they updated their website to, what was it, like transition? Like we're in the transition period now? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was. They're kind of... Um, I think what you guys are saying about these issues are that Trump brought about, they're also issues that have existed for a long time as well. So... Um, you know, he's a manifestation of, like, a lot of the ugly that already existed mm. in the US. Yeah. So, um, it's, yeah, it's a, a long fight ahead and, and you know, uh, Biden is not, like, their saviour right mm. now. Hell no, it's, um, yeah. It's a, it's a okay, this will do for yeah. now. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Chantel, one thing that's really struck me over the past few days has been hearing about the so-called Latino vote and yeah. what that means, especially in the case of Florida, which Trump has won. Um, and this happens a lot, and by no means just in the States. Uh, the media uses like, blanket terms to homogenize vastly different and varied communities. Do you think we should retire the term Latino? Yeah, I, should, I definitely think it should be retired. I think what it reflects is how absent those people are from newsrooms and in the media, mm. the fact that they're being pigeonholed or, you know, analysed as a single entity is so, um, it's lazy. It's lazy by journalists as well, um, you know, who aren't seeing the, the differences that are, that are, that exist between these communities. So I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, comments about the quote unquote Latino vote for, uh, for Trump in Florida, but mm. if you look at it from Arizona, they delivered that win to Biden. What people don't understand is that, you know, there's going to be differences in the way that they vote because of their circumstances. Yeah. You can't pigeonhole or, or have this broad label to describe the approximately 60 million people in the US mm. from, you know, that are categorized as Latinos. So, in terms of geography, they're Cuban, Puerto Rican, Dominican, South and Central American, um, and a whole a whole bunch of others. So in terms of religion, that's going to play a huge role in their political views on things like abortion and gay mm. rights. In terms of racism, um, whether they've experienced it or not, that's dependent on, you know, language or, or skin complexion, which varies. There's the, the um, point about... The generational impact have they been in the u.s for generations or are they first generation are they immigrants and i think people are thinking that oh they're all going to look at immigration the same way and trump's policies the same way but they're not they're obviously going to have different views about yeah. the wall deportations daca you know separating families because it doesn't affect all of them um and also in terms of like wealth, uh, wealth you know yeah. yeah their class that's going to have a a massive um, impact in how they vote because they make up so many different parts of society. Mm. They're, you know, teachers or they're in Congress or they're doctors or they're a cashier. And, you know, ultimately what they're doing is voting in their class interests and, and the media needs to recognise that. 
Yeah, it's 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 also the case as well of how much um, you as a person of color have internalized white supremacy. Yeah, and because we see that like here as well, we and we see it all over in terms of a means of survival. Sometimes oh, is yeah. internalizing, you know, whiteness. Yeah, people and, benefit from their proximity to whiteness all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, and so when you internalize it, you do you. It becomes so conditioned and like white supremacy. That's one of the um, that's one of the um strengths of white supremacy is making you um hate on your own race mm. in a way yeah. and distance yourself from it and assimilate. So I think that's like another thing that people, cause when I saw like, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, people from um, Latino backgrounds that were chanting and, you know, ex- you know, cheering for Trump when um, yeah. Florida won, all I could think was, I don't, all I could see in my head was how, how much have you internalized of whiteness? Mm. But yeah. you think that like, this is a means to your survival right now. Yeah. I think we're seeing that with a, with a lot of um, different races. Like, people are shocked when, you know, um, like, black supporters of, of Trump are, are coming yeah. out. And well, it's, it's going to happen with every race. It's just exactly. The, the, the harm is generalising a whole group of people mm. and expecting them all to vote exactly. the same way when there's so many other aspects that come into play. And that's a fault on the Democrats too, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, we could talk about this at length. As we know, there's so much to unpack. Um, as every minute, there are updates coming from over the seas. But Chantelle Alquiri, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. You can hear um, Chantelle talking all things politics and current affairs on Backchat, airing on FBI Radio 94.5 every Saturday from 9.30am or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Race Matters with Asada Khan and Darren Lasagas. Up next, we're going to hear a conversation that Darren had with musician Ryan Fennis. But first, let's take one from Janelle Monet. This is Crazy Classic, life off her record, Dirty Computer. Language warning.
You're listening to Race Matters. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Darren Lasagas, and this week I caught up with Canberra-based Filipino-Australian musician Ryan Fennis. He's just put out a new EP, Iceberg, and we had a really nice chat about his relationship with his heritage as a philo, uh, his hometown of Canberra, uh, his introduction to music, which I feel like, as you'll hear, a lot of people kind of have the same intro, and how all three of them intersect. I started learning piano in primary school. So that was kind of my first, like, you know, playing music. I didn't really enjoy it, though, because, uh, one, I'm not very good at reading music at all. So I found it super difficult. Um, And then later on in primary school, I also joined music bands and stuff. Uh, I think I joined the year three, four band and I was playing percussion. Um, up until that point, I still didn't really enjoy music at all, really. Um, I, I enjoyed listening to music and all that, but just making music, I, <laughs> I didn't really enjoy it. It wasn't until I started playing guitar in year six was when I first started, like, you know, really enjoying it and really, like, getting into it and trying to learn as much as possible. Mm. Um, started doing that in year... No, I think it was year five. Year five and year six is when I started playing guitar. And I started... I was doing lessons... I'm about year six to year 10. And that's when I like really yeah, got into it. And it was about year 10 was like when I was kind of wanted to see what production was like. So I just installed FL Studio and then started messing around with that. And I've been doing that ever since. My parents never saw me doing music as a career. They kind of, they kind of just like, you know, put me in those lessons just because I think they thought it was like good for me. Which it was, which it was for sure. I feel like Philo families are known to be like quite musical. Is that, was that the same for your family? Um, yes. Well, like we, uh, like there was always music around. Um, we'd always do karaoke as kids as well. And mum's family mm. was very musical, like my uncles and stuff, like all played guitar. And... Um, when mum was growing up in the Philippines, she said that she used to just uh, gather with her friends and they'd all sing and play guitar, which I thought was yeah. quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what kind of songs they were singing? Um, what kind of songs they would sing? Well, they knew, like, because obviously there was a huge American influence. They knew a lot of American music mm. um, because of what I forget when they... I think it was 1940-something. I forget. Yeah. When, when, yeah, 19... I think it was just after the war was when American, you know, American imperialism took over and, you know, they implemented that in the education and the music mm. and all that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, no, they, she knew a lot of English songs. Most of the songs that she'd play were English songs. Every now and then she'd play, a, like, a Bisaya song. Yeah, yeah. But... Yeah, it was mo- she mostly enjoys like English music. My mom speaks Bisaya as well. Where, where's your mom from? Davao. Oh, cool. So she, she's from Davao, and then yeah. my grandparents are from Leyte, so near Cebu. Yeah. So I think only one of my aunties is from uh, Leyte, and then they moved down to Davao mm. like shortly after my uh, eldest aunt was born. Mm. Um, speaking of uh, American influence, I read that you were into the Black Eyed Peas growing up. Is that is that right? 
Oh, yeah, so it was, that was like my first CD, actually. That was like, I forget where I heard it first. I remember, I remember going to a Filipino party yeah. and they, had, they, were, they were blasting uh, the Monkey Business album. I was like, what is yeah. this? <laughs> and then I like, like got into them. And I think I got one of their albums from Christmas and I get the following year I got Elephant for Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, so that was I feel like, like yeah, Elefunk was the one for me because that one had like that had the APL song which had the um Tagalog music in it and I was like, Whoa, yeah. APL <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> um yeah, that, 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 that's the same with um Wonky Business. Yeah. Um oh, what was the song Bebot? Yeah, Bebot. <laughs> they were playing playing that and I, cause I used to just I used to just listen to the album and then like play on computer and yeah. I didn't really know many of the lyrics but then mum like kind of stopped and was like what are you listening to? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> uh, but yeah that's what <laughs> that's my first album yeah. Um, you touched on um, the kind of start of your how you currently produce music and how you started kind of um, Produce the music yourself uh, at in year ten. How do you? Um, I mean, now compared to before, how do you differentiate listening to and creating music? Okay, so I grew up around, you know, a lot of pop music, a lot of um, a lot of music in general, and these styles of music. When we talk about like the popular genres in the Western world you know, a lot of it is black music and a lot of it, you know, comes from uh, like African-American music, like jazz came about in New Orleans in the 19th century, or late 19th century, early 20th century, you know, house came from Chicago in, um, as a derivative form of uh, disco. Uh, you know, trap came from the southern parts of America in the 90s in like Atlanta, Texas, etc. And techno music was from Detroit in the uh, 1980s. You know, so a lot of this music that has, you know, been globalized around the world is black music. Um, and so basically, you know, like jazz, rock, funk, disco, trap, techno, um, they all have, you know, stylistic traits and they all have ways that they sort of came about. Um, and as opposed to me, um, like those have been put into existence in a different way that I've been put into existence. Um, so I want to find ways musically that I can sort of not take so much from those genres. Do you know what I mean? Um, because those genres have been so globalized, you know, I, I, it feels wrong for me to, you know, like take so much musically from those genres. I think it'd be weird if I started just like making house tracks and then put my own twist on it or started making like trap songs and put my, my own twist on it. You know, I'd, mm. that doesn't feel right to me. Um, so I wanted to know like what are things that I could do musically um, that doesn't take so much from those genres. And uh, like a recurring element of uh, all, a lot of those genres is the time signature and like the basis of, of the genre, which is in uh, most of it's in 4-4. Four, four. 
um, or it's like common time is what it's also known as. In house and like techno and disco, it's like four on the floor because you have the kicks on the one, two, three, four. Um, so I really wanted to explore that. And I didn't, I didn't ever question it because it was always around me and that's just what I thought music was, right? Um, I didn't consider it to, you know, be this whole culture um, that was, that has been like so globalized. Um, I first sort of started thinking about it when I was introduced to flamenco. And um, so there's like many different styles of flamenco. Uh, one of them, <laughs> excuse my pronunciation, video <laughs> or something. And they write music in counts of 12. So that was like completely foreign to me when I first heard it because um, they do it in counts of 12 and the beats per minute can be like 240, right? So, um, so this style of flamenco is in counts of 12s and the emphasis is on the third, the sixth, the eighth, the tenth and the twelfth beat. Um, so when I first heard that, I was like, I didn't really understand, but I could still, you know, feel it. Um, so when I saw that and then I started analyzing the music I was like consuming, I was like, oh, okay, there's different ways to write music. And the ways that I knew was like um, African-American music. That's the way I knew how to write music. And so when I was doing that, I was like, I don't really align myself with that. Um, so it's sort of about, for me now, it's about creating my own space for myself. And then creating my own space for myself, it's like, well, what is that? What does that mean to do? You know, um, being a Filipino Australian, I grew up in Canberra, like, what does that mean? And so I was just asking all these questions, like, how do I should write music, blah, blah, blah. And then, so I, I, I guess you kind of have to break it down um, into sections. Like, okay, well, what is being from Canberra? And now I use Canberra as more of a conceptual idea rather than a location because, you know, the location is, you know, none of all land, right? And so Canberra, like Canberra really like shouldn't exist, it, like because it's just a product and it's just another product of, you know, colonialism and settlerism. And so I kind of see Canberra now more as, like I said, a like conceptual idea kind of floating above manual land, you know, because I, I don't, I don't think it's right if I said, because I live on Nanamal land, but I don't make Nanamal music, you know, I don't, mm. I, that, it doesn't feel right for me to say. Um, so like the same way, like the houses, um, the buildings, the roads, is the environmental destruction um, is part of like colonialism, settlerism. My music also exists within that. You know, um, so, you know, what is it to be making music like that? And on top of that, you have the internet and the globalization of black music that has, you know, uh, predominantly 
um, spread around like the Western world. And so, you know, what is it to make music as a Filipino Australian that grew up in Canberra? And then I, I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, well, when you say that, like, if I were to say, what is Filipino Australian music from Canberra? You know, what, what music does that sound like? You know, there's like a big question mark because it's like, it doesn't really exist. Mm. And so my music now is kind of an exploration of that. Um, it's kind of, you know, what, what I can do musically, you know, to quote, kind of create a, my own space for myself. Um, and then, you know, me asking me myself these questions, I'm like, you know, what, well, what is being Filipino and stuff? You know, before I, before I started um, sort of investigating this, I, that was also a big question mark because I, I didn't really know, like, I knew the food and I knew, like, a few gatherings. And that was kind of, yeah, that was, a, that was still, like, a big question mark. Um, and so I started really, like, yeah, just questioning, like, what it is to be Filipino. And then I found, like, uh, I was sort of searching up, like, pre-colonial Philippines and, like, what what it like the term filipino is a like a, another colonial term because oh yeah it's a product of a colony in philippines yeah exactly so it's like filipino is just named after or philippines is just named after king philip yeah um, the second so there's that so it's like okay well like it's being filipino nowadays like or to be a proud Filipino, is that to be proudly colonized? Is it to be, or is it to be, you know, or has it changed its meaning to be sort of a shared experience and a unity of the islands that are now known as the Philippines, you know? Um, yeah, it's hard because it's like, what other language is there to identify who we are as a people or as culture when so much of it is wrapped in the act or... yeah. The, the act of being colonized. No, exactly. So I really wanted to invest, sort of investigate, you know, my mom's, you know, history and my grandparents' history. Mm. Um, all I know of is that they're from Leyte, so in the Visayas. Mm. So I kind of explored what the Visayas were like before Spanish rule. And what, um, what did you find? Oh, a lot, a lot of things. It's taught, it's taught me a lot. So um, many of the societies were matriarchal. Mm. Uh, there was an LGBTQ members of the society. A lot of the gods were LGBTQ. Um, the structures, the, the societal structures, um, particularly um, one of the pillars of the structures, the Babaylan, I thought were very, you know, interesting. There were, the, the Babaylan were predominantly women and often, yeah, often these roles were appointed to women, but they were also, in some instances, men were also given these roles. And what they were, were basically the village healers, like spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical healers. So I've kind of applied that to my life and sort of, 
you know, tried to focus on that. Because before, I was only kind of focused on my like physical health, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. like, I, you know, putting more of a focus on my spiritual, mental and emotional um, helped me a lot. And so those people were kind of the doctors that everyone would go to in the village if they needed some healing. Um, and that they were, you know, very res highly respected members of the community. They would, they would always be consulted if the um, community or tribal council needed to make a decision. Uh, they were expert herbalists. Um, they were expert in the seasons, when to plant, when to harvest. Um, they were also, like these societies are also very uh, environmentally friendly as well. You know, you're living like one with the land and mm. all that. But I found that in the first hundred years of colonization, the Babalan were killed off. You know, they were exterminated because it was kind of a threat to, you know, how the Spanish operated. You know, just how the societies worked. It was a threat to how the Spanish um, saw these. And which was wild to me, like that they were just like, you know, killed off. For, you know, uh, children of Filipino migrants or children of migrants in general living in Australia, um, I feel like a lot of us come to a point in which we have to try and actively decolonize our minds. And that means like reaching back into the history of our forebears and discovering how they were also um, subject to a colony. So, you know, the idea of finding out what pre-colony Visayas was like, you know, going beyond cuisine and food and going into like, what does kinship mean? What does like spirituality mean to, um, yeah, yeah. to um, our ancestors beyond what we've been taught by the or by a colony? And it's like kind of like a revelation or like kind of like a rebirth in some way, but it's only one that you can kind of yeah. do yourself. And I find it fascinating because I myself and a lot of people who are like me find it hard to translate that into some sort of creative output or into some sort of communication beyond that like learning. Do you think you have been successful in translating that into, into your music? I'm not sure whether I've been successful in translating into my music. Um, for me, my music kind of revolves around like a dystopia. Mm. You know what I mean? Because mm. uh, we're currently living in like like a modern modern day dystopia. Yeah. When you when you when you compare it to you know pre colonial times, you're like, oh shit, mm. this is dystopic. Um, so I kind of incorporate that into my music when it's fast paced, it's chaotic. You know, I try and make it so that it doesn't make so so much sense as well, like musically. So I kind of just translate it like in that way. I mean, to me, like, you know, hearing that kind of, um, that sounds like what the act of, you know, decolonization sounds like to me. Like it is dystopic because you are confronted with these, you know, uncomfortable truths or like you have to um, reassess 
you know, you're privileged, you know, we are living on stolen land and we also yeah. benefit, we also benefit, you know, from being part of the colony. And I feel like that is, you know, that's dystopic. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. I think it's, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, I think that's wild. Um, because for a while, like, okay, so I want to get into dream, dream state, dream state mm -hmm. on the, album and that was basically about dwelling in, in the sense of understanding the place you occupy you know what i mean mm -hmm. um so as as well as like okay so i feel like there's a big culture in australia especially on like travel and like m moving around the world and i've had a lot of people being like hey you got to travel like you got to travel like it'll open up your mind and I'm kind of like, you know, I've never, I've never left Australia. Um, so for me, there was like still so much to unpack in Canberra, let alone Australia uh, and the people that surround me and the land I occupy. Um, so I'm still in the process of, you know, unpacking that, you know? So as well as that, um, I don't know. It's it's important not to, you know, glorify like like I said, like glorifying the the Philippines as well, like like being in um, diaspora. Um, a lot a lot of people might look back to, you know, the Philippines and be like, oh, I wish I was there because they might feel a distance from, mm. you know, um, you know, other like Australians here. Um, whereas, you know, I think, I don't think you should do that because there are still so many problems in the Philippines that, uh, occur in, you know, today. And I think my mom did a really good job of that for me when I was growing up, you know, um, she, she'd always be like, aren't you glad you, you're not in the Philippines because, you know, of how like corrupt it is and mm. all that. So she, she, she was, she was never like. She was never like glorifying that, you know? And so, you know, I, th I think a lot of people might run into the problem of like seeing a foreign land and like glorifying it. Like that's going to be, mm. you know, that's what people did with, you know, Australia and look, look, look what happened, you know? And that's exactly. what people did with like, so I, you know, to not run into that, so to, you know, stay sort of where and understand what, what the situation is where you are, you know? Mm. I feel like my, my parents did the same or do the same with me. I mean, it's partly the reason why, I mean, they moved to Australia at the end of the day. And um, I feel like um, part of me discovering my relationship with, you know, the history of the Philippines and my connection to, you know, the mainland is exists outside of my parents because I feel like everything that I... Um, you know, relate to through them will be through the lens of, you know, some sort of trauma that they experience in their, um, you know, in their homeland and also the trauma of uprooting and, and moving to uh, and being displaced like in another country. So, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. See, I, I always question, I used to question it a lot. Um, when I was a kid, I was like, how did my parents meet? Because my dad is mm. from Victoria. My mom is from 
the vow? Like I was like, how did they meet? Like, what's the story of that? And why why did they want to like get married in there? Um, but again, my mom was very open with that. She was like, your dad had a house. That's why I married him. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, fair, fair enough. Um, but I was like, I was always like, okay, well, why, why did you need to like leave the Philippines and all that? And it, I, it got, I guess it comes down to how, you, you know, the corrupt the country has become and like all that. Like I was watching a video and it was... Uh, Oh, I forget which I forget which tribe, but uh, I think it was a tribe in Mindanao, and she was singing a song, and she was like, "When the Spanish issued us their money, that's when we became poor. It was a threat to like our livelihood then." So I was like, "Oh wow, like that really, you know, you know, it, that made sense to me of like why the Philippines, why so many people want to leave the Philippines, you know, um, because it wasn't always." like a capitalist society, you know? Um, I was reading a thing and it was like, the, the, the Visayans had like a lot of gold, right? But they had no desire to be rich. And so, whereas like the Spanish, like the Spanish came to the Philippines to seek like the gold, the spices, all that, and like take away from it, take, like take, um, whereas um, the pre- pre-colonial Philippines would just, you know, live on the land and, you know, a bit, be, be at peace with that, you know. And so I thought that was, you know, very interesting. And it's kind of influenced the way I approach the music industry now as well. Like not want because two years ago, three, two, three years ago, I'd be like, oh, I want to make hits, so I want to... <laughs> streams and I was like well that kind of takes away from you know the, the, the what I'm trying to do you know what I mean um, and I think that was very bad for my mental health as well just like keeping you know that desire to just want more and more and more um, whereas now it's like I kind of just do this for myself you know mm. and I, it's a lot more, you know, therapeutic that way mm. and a lot more healthy that way just to create a space for myself for the sake of it, you know, not to, not to get a bunch of streams, not to, you know, sell a bunch of records, Yeah, you know. So I think, yeah, that has influenced uh, the way I approach um, the music industry as well. Yeah. Mm. That's really cool. I find that, yeah, really like heartening and optimistic in that you can look backwards to inform your current or like future lived experience. And I guess that kind of leads to uh, this last question that I want to ask you, which is um, Ryan, when did you realize there was power in your race? Oh, (laughs) good good question. I I, I used to be very, I remember growing up and I used to be very ashamed of, you know, being Ah, oh, When I saw the painting of, uh, you, you know, the Battle of Mactan, mm-hmm. when I saw that, you know, the, the Philippine resistance, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I, I felt that, you know. 
Um, I guess that, that I, when I saw that, I think I saw that, I don't know, I don't know how long ago. But when I first saw that, I was like, you know, that, you know, felt powerful to me. There's been a lot of times, there's been a lot of times, but that's one that kind of stands out. Yeah. I guess Iceberg. Yeah. Like the AP and yeah. the, um, you know, title track. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of about, you know, all the possibilities, the history, the, uh, the alternate realities, alternate timelines of what something is today. So looking into, like the music I listen to, looking into my race, you know, um, and how you can apply that to a lot of things just to, you know, um, you know, discover things, self-discovery and all that. Um, I think, yeah, that was the main theme of the EP was that different possibilities and, you know, history. What, what, what's underneath the iceberg, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, kind of that informing how I go about music and my, and my craft. Um, that kind of informs, that's kind of the basis of what informs um, my work. Is that an idea that you think you'll continue to explore in in your future music or do you think it's kind of uncovered more ground to to look into? No, I think there's so much more to explore. Like Mm. I I learn more about pre-colonial Filipino music. I want to learn a lot about that. I've been watching videos of like the instruments they use um, I, I still don't know how the music works, like, but you know, that's something I want to delve deeper into. There's a, there's a lot of things that I want to like delve deep, deeper into. Yeah. Um, like one example, like camera technology as well. I think I want to delve deeper into camera technology, um, which I, which I have for a bit, but I was always, you know, curious about that of how like. Uh, yeah, like there's there's a there's a lot to say about it, mm. um, of how um, camera technology, videography, f- photography has become what it is today, and I kind of wanted to explore like what were the al- alternatives, um, and what didn't make it to the mainstream. You know, there was a camera called the PXL two thousand built in the nineteen eighties, and it was a it was a camcorder for kids, and because camcorders back then were so expensive, they used um, simpler technology. They used um, sound recording tapes to um, record video on. And what you get is like a, it's like a, it kind of looks like eight millimeter, but like digitalized and it's black and white. And it's, (laughs) it it looks kind of horrifying. If you think of kids like use that, it looks horrifying. There was actually this like movement in the nineties of like, oh, it could have been nineties or early two thousands of people making horror films out of that camera. So, you know, just like, yeah, just exploring all that, you know, sometimes, I think I already said this, but 
um, sometimes I question myself of whether I want, you know, my own representation mm. in capitalist industry. Mm. You know, that's all, you know, do, like, is that the end goal? Like to have my own representation in that industry? Because at the end of the day, it's ultimately run by a few big companies and those few big companies, you know, most of the money goes to rich white people. Yeah. You know, so it's like, at the end of the day, do I want my music to just be part of that? Or, I want, or do I want it to be, you know, going down a different avenue? Um, so, in saying that, like, when, I, when I'm creating, like, sometimes like, why am I doing this? Um, but then, if, even if that industry didn't exist, you know, creation would still exist. You know, so that's, you know, that's what kind of keeps me doing what I'm doing, like, mm. outside of, you know, creation still exists. That's such a good way, that's such a good way to put it, because I feel like I, I put myself in that position all the time. And obviously, like, I work in a, you know, I guess more, quote unquote, corporate setting in the music industry, and I'm not necessarily mm. creating, but I try and force myself to think on whether... You know, I would listen to music or consume the music or make friends with or communicate with the people that I'm communicating with if this industry didn't exist. And sometimes I have to be like, I don't think I would. And I had to like take a step back and be like, mm. actually, fuck this. Like, I don't, I don't care yeah, about yeah, it in yeah, that yeah. way. Um, but it's nice yeah. Yeah, to like remind yourself to ground yourself. Um, because yeah, as you said, at the end of the day, you're kind of feeding into this beast in which the main beneficiaries and the main people kind of uh, benefiting off everyone's labor are rich old white men. And it's like, yeah. no, nah, there's too many rich old white men named Michael at the top. There's too fucking many. And we need to, yeah. sometimes I just reach a point. I'm like, we just need to burn it down and start again. Yeah, no, exactly. I think um, eventually, you know, creating spaces like for ourselves, you know, mm. Um, instead of like playing into this huge capitalist industry, you know, mm. the space. Because, yeah, music, like I said, before this industry, before, before, before colonialism, before, before everything, music still existed. You know? mm-hmm. It still exists afterwards, you know? Mm. That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. Of course, a big thank you to Ryan Fennis for joining us, as well as Backchat's Chantal Alcouri for debriefing on the US election with us. You can hear her Backchat on FBI 94.5, dab or streaming online at fbiradio.com every Saturday from 9.30 to 10 a.m. or on demand wherever you get your podcasts. And that's also where you can find all the episodes of Race Matters or at fbiradio.com forward slash race matters. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Race matters. 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 Race matters.